Sup Thrill Seekers, I'm Connor. And I'm Dev, and you're listening to Mass Hysteria. <laughs> I thought before we begin that it would be fun to... Um, Go over this meme, or I guess Tumblr-inspired quote, that my dear friend Connor found. It has to do with uh, the Massachusetts highway system, <laughs> but it could probably honestly apply to anywhere in New England. Would be, you like to share I would those love to share. Be like I-93 and always continue to work on yourself. So if you need a little holiday motivation to keep your head up, keep that's your head it, up. folks. So welcome, Thrill Seekers, to a special arson-heavy episode of Mass Hysteria, where I, along with my former flame... <laughs> Long-extinguished flame. Okay, what? <laughs> we can talk about this later. We'll cover, in either case, some crazy cases. Um, when I was in high school, I remember doing a research paper on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Do you know what this is? Um, not really, no. Okay, so it's one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. history, and it killed nearly 150 people in 1911. So every time you do a fire drill in your office or wonder why there's an extensive review of emergency evacuation plans, you can remember that it's related to this event in history. It was one of the primary catalysts for the Department of uh, Labor to set standards and for there to be OSHA mm. regulations. Mm. Mm. So what happens when the fire is not accidental, though? What happens when it's intentional, when it's arson? Well, today we're going to explore two arson cases and the effects that they've had on their Massachusetts communities. Arson is the intentional or deliberate starting of a fire, and it's a serious felony as opposed to a misdemeanor in the state of Massachusetts. So do you remember what happened a few years ago? In, in your town? Yeah. So where I grew up, the town I grew up in, there was an unoccupied uh, house. I believe they like people were squatting there, Oh right? my god, it was so creepy. I remember like when we were driving around, it was like not a good place to drive by at night it was honestly just like scary because there's always people outside and there was weird things happening and it was eerie stuff everywhere yeah it was just not really clear what was happening in that area so the land and the house were scheduled to become town property uh in like the upcoming months i'm not entirely sure of all the specifics the town may have already owned it at that point yeah I, I know that there was like a dispute trying to get the people that were living in the house to leave to leave um but then not suspicious at all, but at 2 a.m., the exact house that there was all this fighting over uh, was burned to the ground. And, of course, the immediate belief was that it was arson, and all day the police were patrolling the area. And one of our friends, shout out to Kelso, our mutual friend. Hey, Kelsey. Uh, she was saying that police often do this because arsonists will come back to, quote-unquote, admire their work. So this can be in different ways. Urination, stalking the spot even like pleasuring themselves where the fire <laughs> happened, which is something I don't want to picture, but I guess could happen. Um, and this case was never resolved. It was never officially declared to have been an act of arson, but... I it wanted... did solve the squatter problem. Or There's so... no more squatters There's no there. squatter. You can't squat in a house that doesn't exist. <laughs> it's true. Um, but I wanted to bring it up because it kind of makes you wonder if there is a profile of an arsonist. Uh, I want to know if I should be distancing myself from Connor. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Probably. <laughs> if not for that, for some other reason. Yeah, we'll find a reason eventually in one of these episodes. Um, <laughs> Keep trying. So there was a study done in the Netherlands with 25 convicted arsonists. Uh, I can, I'll link the exact uh, details of the study in the episode description. But the major findings were that 
arsonists were less likely to suffer from psychotic disorders, but over half of the study participants uh, claimed they had like delusional thinking. The control group was 50 uh, non-arsonists, and compared to this group, the arsonists were more likely to be impulsive, they were less likely to be charming, even superficially so, and less likely to have been a juvenile delinquent. So the problem here... and you wow, can even, sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, he checks more than a few of, of those boxes. I check more than one of those boxes. Um, but Watch the, your house. <laughs> I have confiscated his lighter and his matches. <laughs> um, but the problem here is that, and it's kind of iterated many times in the study, is that there's really like very minimal available arson-related research because there's not really a large group of convicted arsonists that they can uh, use as a sample, right? Because it seems like people get away with it a lot, actually, Get away right? with it. Like, or I think also for the study specifically, they wanted to talk to people who were repeat offenders. Like okay. It wasn't a one-time thing mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. So have some arsonists shown serious mental disorders? Yes. But then there's others that have shown no signs of an illness. Do some have issues with excessive drinking? Yes. But then there's some that never drink at all. Some have lower IQs and poor social skills, but some can still be charming. Like there's no definitive picture of who an arsonist could be. And there's obviously not a large enough sample size to say that this is a general profile of an arsonist. So one thing that they did say um, in the study that was very helpful was that there are really six main motives for arson. They are vandalism, and this is an exact quote from the uh, study, vandalism, excitement, revenge, fire setting as an act of terrorism, fires raised with financial gains, or fires raised uh, to conceal criminal behavior. So of the 25 arsonists that they studied, 80% of them ended up being repeat offenders. So you may be thinking, as I'm sure Connor is right now, where are we driving to, DevDog? Well, <laughs> what happens when it's not one fire, but 163 of them, and the people accused of starting them are supposed to be the ones protecting you? And what happens when you try to intervene and help, but are instead accused of setting the fires yourself? Today, we're going to be discussing two different arson cases. So get yourself a warm drink, maybe a blanket, but try to stay in your seat because these two cases are about to shock you. Uh, Victor Rosario was 24 years old, so he was younger than both of us. We're very sage and wise. We are. That's how I describe myself in my Tinder profile. Mm-hmm. Um, when his life drastically changed. He lived in Lowell, Massachusetts, which was the home to like many industrial jobs, especially in the 1980s. He had just lost his job at the mattress factory. He was a drinker and a heavy one, but he was a kind man, not one who would ever start a fire intentionally. On March 5th, uh, 1982, on Decatur Street in Lowell, a fire broke out taking the lives of eight people, three adults and five children. So the University of Michigan uh, Law School had a long section about the case, and this is a quote from their website. Firefighters concluded that arson caused the blaze. The fire appeared to have been ignited in more than one location. Moreover, they observed patterns on the floor indicating a flammable liquid had been present, as well as other indicators of arson, such as heavy charring and low burning. Hmm. The next day, Victor Rosario went to the hospital for serious cuts on his hands. Victor lived with his girlfriend and her children in an apartment near where the fire had happened. So, this looks suspicious because the windows on the house that uh, caught fire were all broken and he went to the hospital with a bunch of Ooh, scrapes and cuts yeah. that looked like they had been caused by glass. So police showed up talking to him after learning about his injuries. Now, note with this because we're going to come back to it. Rosario depended on translators to talk to the police. One of his girlfriend's sons mm. was the first translator for Rosario. So Rosario told them like, 
hey, I was out drinking with two friends and we saw the fire. I heard children screaming and I tried to go inside, but the smoke was heavy, so I had to break the window. And that's how he cut his hands. So, but he didn't like tell the police when this happened? Well, uh, I think when he, after they were trying to break in, like the fire truck showed up. So they just left the scene. I, I think he this tried to weird, he tried yeah. to intervene, but yeah. Um, yeah, he ended up going to the hospital with cuts on his hand. Mm-hmm. So Edward Evans was one of the neighbors in the area, and he saw a man who looked like Rosario with his hands raised on the night of the fire. He didn't actually see him throw anything. This information from Evans was enough for the police to bring Rosario back in to question him. Um, one of the things I saw when I was reading about it is Edward Evans was like could not pick Rosario out of a lineup, so he's like. Look, he's saying, like, yeah, I definitely saw that guy. So basically guy. he was just racist, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, but he um, he was, yeah, so he couldn't identify Rosario. He, I think they asked him three times before he could actually pick Rosario out of a lineup. Well. Um, so they brought Rosario back in to be questioned. At the station, Rosario was given another trans- translator. Keep in mind the time of night here. The interrogation started after midnight and went on for, like, four hours. Mm. So imagine, like giving a statement that late at night and there's no warning like take a cat nap before because the police are going to come get you um and also it's not in your native language like yeah yeah uh, so this is all being translated all being translated exactly so rosario gave multiple statements to the police that were turned in well two of them were turned into signed confessionals so the first one he was coming home with his friends and saw the fire he went over to help the second one at 3 a.m., he gave the same the statement that he was coming over from a bar with his friends, Felix and Eduardo, and he said Felix asked him to be a lookout while he threw a Molotov cocktail, which is like a beer bottle filled mm-hmm. with flammable liquid, mm-hmm. um, through the window of the building that caught fire. He wanted it to burn. After it was lit, Rosario ran inside to uh, save the people. I don't think he realized people were inside. Okay. So that was the second confessional. Okay. Now, the third statement was that he and Felix and Eduardo had made the cocktails ahead of time and threw them at the building to target the Cortez family over a drug argument. So who is the Cortez family? Did they own the... They were the... Uh, sorry, they were the ones that perished in the fire. Okay. So it was at the station that Rosario started having breakdowns. So he was, like, seeing demons. He claimed they were speaking to him. And he would not testify against his friends. So they were never prosecuted. Mm, that's so sad. Which, I I don't know if I would do that. Like, if the thought of... Um, being in jail for the rest of my life or like saying yeah my buddy connor like help me do this i don't <laughs> I would, know if i would I definitely would... throw you out if i'm gonna be miserable for breaking the law we're gonna be miserable and you together. also broke the law we're definitely gonna be miserable together although probably not Correct. together but then we'd at least know the others miserable uh felix and eduardo were never prosecuted like i said and they ended up actually both going back to puerto rico shortly after this happened so the university of michigan in their case said that on march 28th 1983 the jury convicted rosario of eight counts of murder and one count of arson he was sentenced to eight consecutive life in prison terms and a concurrent term of eight to 22 years on the arson conviction so enter the story hero andrea peterson who took on victor's case after his appeals were denied she worked with an arson expert which is like the coolest job title i've ever heard it was cool yeah um, John Latini, who said that the evidence the police had used basically to prove that it was arson was outdated and had been debunked. So you might be thinking, but like, wait, didn't he say he did it, that he set the fire with his friends? Well, you can decide that for yourself in a little bit. So University of Michigan in their, in their case said that a Molotov cocktail was made with a 12 ounce beer bottle, which would likely have burned out in about 10 seconds. This is not enough time to ignite wood. Such as, like, the stairs and the floor. Mm-hmm. Like, think of what a house right. is made out of. 
So now what does a fire need to burn, Connor? Needs oxygen. Needs some oxygen. So breaking windows and doors to go inside and help rescue people will provide so the So definitely would have made it kind of... That, you know, they say that, like, oh, we opened the door and suddenly, like, the house, you know, you hear that about murders. Or not murders, sorry, uh, fires that, you know, you open the door and it's like the house suddenly like goes all the way up goes in up. flame. Exactly. And so it's not possible, like, how the witness was like, oh, yeah, I totally saw him, like, throw this beer bottle and there was a huge explosion. Like, right. that's scientifically yeah, not, in in, not possible. So if you're still not convinced that Rosario was not the malicious arsonist that he was portrayed as, let's bring in his translator, Ramon Neves. So, in a sworn affidavit, Neves said Rosario confessed to him that he was on, like, heroin or, like, a cocktail of drugs when he was taken at the time of his, the interview, um, and that he had never made a Molotov cocktail, and he never threw anything at a building. Um, Interesting. The event, so if you think about when they came to Rosario's um, apartment, it was after, like, a day and a half after all of this happened, and he was so scarred from seeing the... Um, the fire that he like swore that it was the devil intervening and like telling him not to drink. So he was also experiencing symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. Interesting. Um, so is there like, no, you may not know, but like if you're interviewing someone or interrogating someone that's under the influence of something, is that like, does, is that not I taken into consideration? I literally wrote this when I was reading this. I was like, if you cannot drive a car, you yeah. should not be allowed to give a confessional. Three times they made him sign three confessions. Three different confessionals. And they're like, oh, this dude's high. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and like he was literally sitting there screaming that he was seeing the devil. Yeah. Like, so maybe isn't something. Maybe we should like kind of take a break here. Maybe we should step back a second. Um. Yeah. I. That's so funny because I literally wrote that. I was like, yeah. If you cannot drive a car after two beers, you should definitely not be allowed to give a confessional that could put you in jail for life. Um. So Neve said that Rosario, this is like a sworn affidavit, by the way, okay? So he did all of this. This is not like someone interviewing after. This is what happened when they, um, when Andrea came on the case. Neve said that Rosario never said he acted as a lookout for others who set the fire. He never threw a Molotov cocktail. And the detective made up those allegations during the interrogation and wrote them in himself on the written statements that Rosario signed. So by oh. the time he signed the last two statements, like, Rosario was completely incoherent. The statements were not in his native language. Oh my god. So he wouldn't have even known no, really that it was what's added. on there. Exactly. So I mentioned Andrea Peterson, who was the all-star that... Uh, she works for the New England um, Innocence Project. She's a, mm -hmm. a lawyer. So she wrote this incredible piece about the story of his exoneration, which took 11 years. That's oh. as long as we've been friends. Oh my god. Um, and this woman, from my research, is... She's absolutely incredible. So she was the one who contacted John Latini, who we talked about, the fire expert. And he, John Latini once saved a man from being electrocuted. Like, he would have been electrocuted 24 hours later. But John Latini, in the last 24 hours, was able to prove that basically the fire evidence that he was convicted on was incorrect. And since then, like, Latini has been on this mission to help as many people as he's able to. So uh, she brings together, you know, this all-star all team and they start to realize that the fire, like, quote-unquote, evidence was basically built to support the arson theory. It's not something that was actually existed. Hmm. And this was a, a quote from um, uh, Andrea herself. She said, in the course of examining the fire evidence, we also discovered that the original fire investigators testified contrary to what their slides showed, all for the prosecution theory of arson to fit so the jury would believe that it was wow. arson. 
Um, and so she kind of talks about everything that they were debunking. So the eyewitness was obviously another part of the case. The eyewitness never said he saw Victor throw something. He said, in, he instead had said that Victor had his arm raised, and this was more likely to have been because Victor was trying to break in to rescue the right, children. Right, break windows. Exactly. That's why he had uh, cuts on his hands. And um, this was something that I did not realize. So the false confession, um, keep in mind it's the early 80s. Interrogations were not recorded. So he would be in a room alone with multiple officers, detectives, whatever, and they could basically lure him into a false confession. There's no evidence That's that they so did that. That's so interesting because I've definitely heard other cases from around this time period that people, you know, kind of said the same thing that like things were not the way it sounded on paper or read on paper and there's really no way to prove otherwise. Because they have, yeah, they there's don't have any tape no they can evidence. go back to. And so, uh, they had an expert review what happened with Victor, and he was like, yeah, the tactics that he, they used to, like, lure Victor into a false confession were based on the fact that Victor was having a mental breakdown. He just wanted to be over. And experiencing what we talked about with alcohol withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, basically, it's insane that he was allowed to talk when he was high and uh, experienced withdrawal and clearly like four in the morning, you're going to ha- make someone sign a confessional that's going to potentially put them away for life. Um, yeah, and- it would be interesting to know if now there is like some more of a safeguard in place than there was at this time in the eighties. I, you know, that's something that would be interesting to research. Yeah. So after three decades in prison, he was formally exonerated. He actually became an ordained minister while he was in prison, Aww. and he works at a church with his wife now. That's adorable. He's 63 years old. Uh, he's, he's a very cute little man um, from the pictures I found. So he actually told WBR, which I would absolutely not have the mental strike that he said, but he's like, yeah, I'm not bitter. Um, but he said that he's, uh, he's going to soon be starting a house for former prisoners to help them transition back into society. That's awesome. And he filed lawsuits, state and federal lawsuits, last year. And let's, like, all cross our fingers that Rosario gets some form of justice. Interesting. Uh, so he's been out of prison for 10 years and he just filed lawsuits? No, no, sorry. He was uh, exonerated in, like, 2015 and then he formally filed lawsuits in 2018 or 19, Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So before we jump into the next case... One that will probably make your jaw drop. I think we should review some firefighting terminology. So, By uh, firefighting terminology, do we mean that we're going to go through the 2021 uh, firefighters calendar? Uh, did you open your Christmas present? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have. <laughs> Good, because I didn't. Um, <laughs> so a little overview on fire naming conventions. You've probably heard the term two alarm fire, five alarm fire, etc. So this system is used to indicate how serious a fire is. It does not translate like two alarm means two trucks, five alarm means five trucks. It's a little bit more detailed. So X number of firefighters, X number of trucks, X number of commanders, etc. And each level of alarm shows how these um, components increases. It's a nice little mathematical function there. Um, So for people that aren't nerding out with the math. Yeah, we're not all econ majors. Um, I've graduated college, by the way, so I'm no longer a major. Um, you're right, you're right. We, uh, really all you need to take away, I guess, here is that a higher alarm means the fire is more serious and more crew members and resources are brought in. So a lot of the material that we're about to cover came from the book Burn, Boston, Burn by Wayne Miller. 
Uh, it's a really interesting read, and I recommend checking it out if you're curious to learn more. I was, like, kind of in a pinch to get the book, so I actually had to download the Walmart app. We're a little disappointed in this. Okay, we're disappointed, but, like, if you say that Target is better than Walmart... No, I think you should support independent sellers, booksellers, Devin. Okay, true, but I mean... This is 2020. Yeah, you're right. You're We're right. not supposed to be supporting corporations. I know, but like... You're disappointed When you need it us. in a pinch, Walmart, baby. The followers and I are disappointed. I'm honestly disappointed myself, so that makes, <laughs> that all, makes of all of us. <laughs> um, so, how did Boston become the place of the largest arson case in the U.S. history? How did we grow up? I mean, granted, in the 90s. And not the 80s, but never hear of this. Like, I've never heard of the Boston Arson Spree. I had never heard of this either until we started talking about it a couple weeks ago. I had never heard of it, which is odd to me. So this, dear thrill seekers, is the shocking story of the Boston Arson Spree. And it's sure to leave you thinking about it long after we finish the episode. So you ready, old flame? <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> the laugh was definitely not forced. Um... <laughs> So the year 1981 started for the Boston Fire Department with a series of unrelenting and unrelated fires. They, there were multiple alarm fires wreaking chaos across the city and even taking the lives of some of the civilians. In Boston's Back Bay, one of the fires was so heavy that two of the lieutenants were injured so badly they died shortly after being rescued by their oh, comrades. God. This was only January 2. The year had only started and the firefighters were already overworked and overwhelmed with the severity and the number of calls they were receiving. Wow. They were shocked and in disbelief, I'm sure, when in early February, and this came exactly from Miller's book, quote, General Order Number 9 was issued, deactivating Engine Company 25, Company 43, and Ladder Company 20. Further cuts took place on April 10th when Engines 112, 26, 34, 45, 50, and 54 were wow. deactivated. So the, the numbers, I guess, are... There's so many of them, it doesn't, I don't need to give all the specifics, but all of a sudden there were way less firefighters and way less resources. The and way more work. Way more work. The deactivations resulted in hundreds of firefighters losing their jobs, and if they were lucky enough to keep their jobs, they were demoted. The, they also, the city used like tactics to um, entice like senior members to retire early. This is super suspicious. Very suspicious. So, uh, if you're confused what a company is, like a... I said an engine company and a ladder company. Basically, it's like it's like really a team. Like if me, you, and Joe had a our own fire truck, like okay. we're a team. So they took a whole gotcha. quote they unquote team of out of here. Yeah, I wow. got kind of lost in a subreddit about this. So, <laughs> what's the TLDR here for 1981? Fewer firefighters were working more hours and feeling the horrible impact of this year-long layoff process. So why did it happen? Well. Boston didn't have the money to fund to central city departments, and it became a political issue, pinning police and fire departments against each other. In late 1981 into early 1982, it then became suspect when dozens and dozens of fires began breaking out across the city. Multiple alarm fires with no identifiable patterns. Wow. No way to predict when the next one would be set off. So in the book, Miller, who, he didn't like immediately say this in the book, he said this like probably 10 or 15 pages in, he was a special agent that was brought in to investigate this arson ring. Just super casual. I mean, he was like, yeah, so I was a special agent brought in to, uh, to track down the arson ring. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were just a <laughs> random like, man who loves New England. Um, actually, Connor, we should tell them how we're special agents. Uh, oh, Devin. It's coming in episode six. Um, <laughs> so he said that the fires were happening so frequently 
that they were actually garnering national attention and Boston became branded as the arson capital of the country. What a terrible like brand or legacy to have. Yeah, well, so nine men were, were responsible for not one, but 163 across the city and the surrounding counties. Fires. Wow. 163. Wow. These were no random delinquents or skilled pyromaniacs. These were men in uniform. Police officers, firefighters, even security personnel. What? Who knew exactly what they were doing. Why were they doing this? Well, that's literally what I wrote next. Well, Sim, we'll touch on other ideas shortly, but the main reason was um, extortion. Uh, They believed that if they set enough fires and left damage and destruction, then the city wouldn't cut property taxes and then the city budget as a result, so that they would realize that these essential workers were (laughs) indeed essential. The city is not going to cut property taxes, but if no one's living there because you're burning their houses down and they're moving away because they were the arson capital of the world, oddly enough, there's going to be less money. I'm not really sure how this theory was supposed to pan out. uh, I I don't think you're the first one to question it. (laughs) So Miller says in his book, well, they may have believed, at least initially, that they were Robin Hood and his gang, stressing to the city how necessary essential workers are. Their plan went beyond that. It was 163 fires. They were domestic terrorists in every sense yeah, of the word. Yeah, absolutely. That came directly from Miller's book. So, Greg uh, Bemis, Greg with two Gs, might I add. Greg. Um, which I don't know if we trust that. Greg with actually three Gs, if you count the first one. Oh, you're uh, right. <laughs> he was a firefighter in the late 70s into the early 80s. So, he called the arson stunts um, like spark sprees, and he would even go to his deceased mother's grave to confess his intentions before starting the night. What? His crew of arsonists themselves were called sparks, quote-unquote, and they knew fire. They knew how to set one that would last. They knew the effort necessary to put it out. If Reddit existed in the 1980s, these guys would have been the fire subreddit moderators. Can you imagine how upsetting that would be to find out that, like, your, like, comrades or co-workers are doing this to you? Oh, you think they were upset? Just you wait. Just you wait. <laughs> um, so they were obsessed and they were knowledgeable, which was a dangerous pairing. Um... Lenny Kendall was only 20 years old when he drove with Bemis around the city to witness a fire. In the beginning, it didn't matter if they said it. They just wanted to see it. When the two men arrived at the fire, they were um, disappointed that it had already been extinguished. But oh, the, so this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier with the police and Kelsey Showing us. up, watching. Exactly. That came oh, back. Look at this full picture. Coming back around. Full picture here. So by the time they got to that fire, it was extinguished. But there, across the street, were two men who would become part of the stop, the spark crew. Donnie Stackpole and Bobby Grobolewski. They call him Grobo, wow, which is way easier for me. Um, so I'm going to call him Grobo because I'm not familiar with Polish last names. <laughs> but uh, Donnie Stackpole and Bobby were standing across the street. So Stackpole had no high school diploma, and he already had a history with the law. But he wanted to become a firefighter. So when he was ultimately rejected from the civil position... Uh, he had a lot of resentment. His resentment lasted long enough for him to see the city burn 162 more times. Wow. So Stockpole worked for a company, um, and like Miller writes, quote unquote, the company quarters would soon become the arsonist headquarters. So they would like all gather where Stock- wow. Stockpole was. That was wild. Um, so, you know, those guys who buy cars in high school with the headlights because they want to look like they're dri- riding Ugh. a cop car yes. or driving a cop car. Or they, uh, like, make some We know one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Shout out to Winnie. Shout out to his older brother. (laughs) Um, So, like, those were these guys. Greg's Impala car resembled a police cruiser, and Donnie would... I don't even, like... I mean, I guess it's the 80s, but he would put, like, the lights on top of his car so it looked like he had the sirens. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he wanted to look like an emergency vehicle. So I currently live in Boston, well, the Boston area, and it's tough for me to imagine Boston in the 1980s because the Boston I know right now looks really different. In the 70s, Boston was attempting to desegregate the city with the school busing system. Miller highlights in his book that there was so much media attention surrounding the schools that people didn't notice that there was a series of fires started across the city, specifically in areas people were looking to invest in, like Fenway. This quote-unquote arson for hire ring, as it was called, was a ploy for investors to buy up pieces of property in the area. Well, this oh, so year- they would just like hire people to burn it down. Yeah, because it's easier to buy up a burned property. That is insane. Um, well, the series of fires was not related to the arson spree of 1982. It does show how arson was used as a tool. Also keep in mind that the group of arsonists that we're talking about were young white males during a time when Boston was trying to diversify civil servants by including minorities and also including women. They were really angry, Mm. not justifiably so, but this was where their anger was stemming from. Additionally, they were from neighborhoods that were not well off, and the tax cuts always hit hardest in those kind of neighborhoods. So the fires went on from 1982 to 1984. 264 buildings burned. Miller, the author we've been discussing, was on the task force to catch these men. He quoted to the Boston Globe that it really kind of um, became like a game of cat and mouse for them. What started as, like, I guess some kind of public statement, maybe even a perverted attempt at justice, became an addicting game. A conspiracy of nine men leaving the city completely helpless. They even, ironically really, ended up hurting the guys they were trying to help. That's just so crazy to me. Like, this is your city, and you're mad about it, so you're just going to make things worse. And one of the fires left 22 firemen dead. So, like, you don't have any pride for your city anymore, and you're hurting the people that you used to work with. The case required a task force of experts to investigate and narrow in on who was starting all these horrific fires. So, like, remember how I said it was like a cat and mask thing as it progressed? Well, they began being arson conspirators, began to really teasing the task force. A letter was sent to a local TV station. You know those notes for, like... People cut up the letters from magazines or newspapers and they like, different letters. I see you. Yeah. (laughs) They wrote one and it said, I'm Mr. Flair. You might know me as the Friday Firebug. What? I will continue till all deactivated police and fire equipment is brought back. Which, like, you're going to call yourself Mr. Flair the Firebug? That's that's your attempt to justice. Also, when they're all brought back, well, what about all the ones you're killing? Yeah. So. Or at least injuring. Jesus. So, who do you think penned this genius poetry ding 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 it's greg with two well three g's freaking greg uh, i'm connor with two n's <laughs> connor with two n's does not approve greg with three g's approve greg with three um, g's. so what was the domino that started the downfall of this conspiracy ring well that's a good question the first part of it was i'm going to talk about the guys that were involved greg bemis we talked about uh grobo stackpole and this guy named joe gorman they set a fire at a dedham uh lumber yard and then Coming back to this, like, beautiful New England theme, they hung out at Dunkin' Donuts until the mm. fire alarm sounded. Classic. Um, and right after they saw the trucks rushing to the scene, they followed afterward. So a WBZ cameraman, um, his name was Nat Whittlemore, and a photography friend, Eddie Fowler, who acted as, like, a fire informant, I guess, as well, for Cambridge, picked up on a pattern. Not a fire pattern, but now there was a personal one. Why were all these men showing up to the fires? And why were they doing it so, like, quickly? Wow, these guys really are not smart at all, are they? Which, well, oh, you think this is bad? (laughs) Just wait. So the icing on the cake came when Whittlemore, keep in mind, like I said, he works, he's a WBZ cameraman, caught on tape Bobby Grobo, her boy Grobo, waving a gun in quote-unquote celebration 
Like, guns scare the poop out of me, so, like, I wouldn't have a gun anyway. But can you imagine doing something like this and then taking your gun and, like, doing a victory wave Yeah, in it? 1980s Boston. Um, so little more, they got this on tape, and he turned it over immediately to the investigation. Also, I don't think I've said this yet, Bobby Grobo was a full-time cop. Are you kidding me? So Miller and his partner on the task force went over to Grobo's after seeing this footage, and they didn't get much out of him when pressing him about, like, this gunslinging behavior or his view of the fires, but they did notice he had a firebox. Do you know what that is? Actually, I don't want to know what you're thinking. Um, but <laughs> they are what you use to signal fire. So, like, you'll see them on uh, in the cities on the poles. Oh, yes, 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 I've yeah. seen those. Um, and based on where the box is located, it signals where the trucks right. need to go. So, Grobo had firebox 1712, my favorite number. I'm just kidding, but I do like the number 17. Um, which, first of all, it's technically illegal to have. Mm-hmm. He claimed he got it at a flea market. Mm-hmm. True. But Firebox 1712 had a perch near where the first fire started, and it disappeared when the fire spree began in 1982. So he took a cute little souvenir for himself. His little trophy for himself. Didn't go to Disney, just took a souvenir. Didn't didn't play Little League Baseball, but has a trophy. Oh my god. Um, Have you seen Fight Club? Yeah. Okay. Well, even if you are listening and you haven't seen Fight Club, you probably know that the first rule is don't talk about Fight Club. (laughs) Well, that applies to the Sparks Sparks Club, too, so... Grobo, after this happened, um, he got really paranoid and angry, and he felt like some of the club members might be selling him out. So he decided to um, light the Sparks Club space on fire, where they'd been meeting. Oh, my God. So it was a huge fire, and they are all just, like, watching their stuff burn, which is, like, very self-sabotage. I mean, I, I, I guess I can this sort of wrap my head around so what he's doing. This whole thing is self-sabotaging. I know. So he wanted to burn the evidence, but, like... Can you imagine being like, my mini fridge is in there, like, and just having to watch it burn because they want the evidence gone? Um, and he, I guess he probably wanted to teach the club a lesson, too. So the men were under surveillance for months. Like, the police had started to, this task force, I guess, had really started to piece together who was involved. Mm-hmm. So Bobby was the domino that really tipped it. But um, he had, I, okay, I don't actually know how this man was still a cop when this happened, but unrelated to arson, he had previously driven a vehicle he had stolen into a body of water. <laughs> Uh, and they were Boston's like Boston's finest, everyone. <laughs> Boston's finest. Uh, isn't he your uncle? I'm just kidding. Um, he had been, uncle Bobby. We have a uh, yeah. Let's bring Bobby out. He's gonna speak. Um, no, but he had pre- previously driven a vehicle, um, and then they they were able to like retrieve it from the bottom of whatever body of water he dr- had driven it into, and they could like easily see. Oh, this has stolen parts. So. The stolen parts did not have serial numbers, okay? But the task force proceeded to question Bobby and pressure him on the premise of a risky bluff. So they basically like brought him in and were like, we know you have stolen parts in your car, but they weren't able to prove it, but they right. were bluffing with the hopes that he wouldn't catch on. So they told Bobby he would be charged with theft, but then, like, keep in mind, Bobby's a police officer. So Detective Kelly, who was working on this task force, he said, this is one of the best quotes I've ever read. This is from Miller's This book. is directly from Miller's book. Quote, you gave an oath to protect the people of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Who will protect them from you? You're a failure. We know about the fires. You hang out with a crew setting fire after fire, and you're in the middle of it. We're getting close, and the first one in the door gets the best deal. Like, if you don't think I'm going to use that line once I have kids, like, you're completely wrong. (laughs) The first one in the door gets the best deal. where we get our parenting advice. Okay. Mommy, I swear to... The first one in the door. <laughs> um, and then he, like, kind of leans in closer to Grobo, and he's just like, six of us have badges and only five of them deserve it. 
So Grobo pleads guilty and they use him to bring down nine other men. I think they like put a wire on him and stuff. Um, and the Boston or Washington Post article details other people involved. So he's, th- this is directly from the article. Others indicted, in addition to Bemis, Stackpole, and Sandin, a lieutenant in the Boston Housing Authority Police Department, were Ray J. Norton, uh, who's 44, and he was a full-time Boston firefighter, Leonard Kendall, who was only 22, lived in Acton, and was a U.S. uh, Air Force fireman. Holy crap. Joe Gorman, who lived in Quincy and was a general dynamics uh, rigger. Um, Chris Damon, who, like, ended up moving to Ohio after, but... He skipped town once he, like, found out that Grobo was involved. Um, and so there was nine men that were involved in this. So Grobo was um, sentenced to 12 years in federal prison after he uh, pled guilty to four fires in Boston and plotted to set 25 others, though wow. I think the number was quite a bit higher uh, than that. Yeah. Um, Stackpole got 60 years for his involvement, and the judge was saying that, like, these were either acts of terrorism acts of terrorism or sheer malice like i don't know which so stackpole i guess they had like deemed was a complete sociopath um bemis was sentenced to 30 years in prison but served less than that less than half of it um because he cooperated with uh the police he ended up like writing i think 180 page like uh document about why they did everything and he even sent christmas cards to miller like in the task force and he he like this that kind of confuses me i guess he like is genuinely kind of happy that they got caught and he doesn't hold any resentment. Maybe he just kind of got caught up in the whole thing. You know, they're all Couldn't angry stop. and yeah. So what are the known fates of all the conspirators? Well, in the epilogue to uh, Miller's book, he says that Grobo lives in Massachusetts and he's changed his name. Bemis lives in Mass too and he supports the book and the work that Miller does. And Norton, Mr. Ray Norton, who was quite sour and... Um, angry in the book he was convicted in 2009 and is now a registered sex offender so no more fires have been set by these men and hopefully no more ever will be this is crazy and i had never heard of this 163 fires and i hadn't heard about any of this so i guess you you learn something new every day but Uh, i guess so wow um until then folks uh hide your lighters throw out your matches yeah, don't invite me over. And use the microwave. I've got a lot of ideas now. To cook, to cook your food from <laughs> now on. Okay, stay safe, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.